Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. One of the things that I love is to write a good story. I think everybody loves to watch a great story, especially in the movies or sit down with a great novel, but every story has the same basic outline. And maybe you've not realized it, but it always kind of starts in what they call the summer mode where everybody's happy and the hobbits are good. And you know, there's this young boy and he's man on an evaporating farm or whatever it's called. You wind up with the positive, of the good, and then suddenly something happens to bring tension, drop something in, and boom, you're right into the middle of the tension. And that's the point. That tension begins to build and build, and you know, hobbits are running off to uh, off into a Mordor, and people are fighting Death Stars, and people are going down into death. And what's crazy is in every story, be it a romance, be it a um, be it a, a fantasy novel, be it a mystery. Everything starts to get to the point where suddenly it's all dead. Uh, the mystery's closed. You can't figure it out. Suddenly the, the romance is, is over and no one loves each other anymore. They broke up. They can't be together. Or maybe they're literally, their mentor is dead and there's no direction and it's all over. And this is the point at which every story gets to. A good story drives to this winter moment in which everything is over and then boom, something breaks it loose. And it's at that break loose that all the tension releases, the cheering happens, and all the joy begins to occur as life and everything births into the new. And this is the wonder of a great story. It's when Golem falls off into the, uh, the, the fires uh, in Mordor. It's when we end up with suddenly the Death Star exploding. If I'm ruining movies for you that you haven't seen, I'm sorry. Uh, by this point, I'd hope you had. But the point is simply clear that we have a similar thing going on in our lives. We have a life where God wants to put a, his story into it. And the story in the Bible is the same. All the way down to where Jesus is dead, the winter comes, and then he resurrects from the dead. And all the tension is released as it's rolling through the universe. This is that gospel we spoke about, that creation, fall, redemption, consummation gospel in which everything comes back and restored perfectly. Same story arc because it's the true story arc. It's the one God wants to put in each one of our lives but as a church we can get distracted from that story as a church as a as a leader I can get distracted off that story and I want to call us back to that story I want to call your life to that story 
And that means we need to act appropriately as we present that story. We don't want to get distracted, especially when it comes to something called the law. And that was something that was happening. They were getting distracted by the law, and the law was taking the story in the wrong direction. It was moving away from the gospel. And we find that Paul, the writer of this book of 1 Timothy, was actually declaring to his protege, the pastor he's left there, to correct elders who are taking them in the wrong direction. And so if you open your Bible to 1 Timothy, we're going to find ourselves engaged in a, a letter from a pastor to pastors. And this, uh, this letter is designed in such a way so that where the leadership goes, so does the congregation. We need to know this information as a leader because the congregation needs to know this information and follow with it. And so Paul has been challenging Timothy to teach the church not to get distracted, not to get distracted by speculations, mythologies, and genealogies, not to get distracted from the, the main goal, which is that we would love each other from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith, and not to be distracted by the law. Legalism. We talked about this last week, and so now we're going to dive in a little deeper. What is this law? Why is the Old Testament there? What's it for? All these great questions as we look at 1 Timothy again in our final section here on our series, Distracted. As you get there, we're going to see that what Paul is going to argue is that this law that is being misused, this law that we've been looking at, in fact, earlier he said there were certain persons swerving away and wandering away into vain discussion, and they were desiring to be teachers of the law. That's what he says up there in verse 7. And then we find ourselves that he is, he's now having to challenge this idea. But he starts off with this fact that the law is good. The law is actually good when it's used rightly. And this is important because as we look at the text, we're going to discover that the law isn't something we get rid of. The law has a specific purpose. Let's take a look at this as we begin. We're going to hear it in verse, uh, verse 8. It says, Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. And we're going to stop right there because Paul's saying a lot here. First and foremost, we know that the law is good, he says. We know that it's good when it's used rightly, when we engage correctly. You see, the law was made for a specific purpose. It's a lot like our tools, right? We have a hammer here. A hammer is designed for a specific purpose. It is not designed to drive a screw. Now, some of you guys out there are like, I figured out how to drive a screw. That's awesome. For the rest of us in this world, to be quite honest, to drive a screw is to just jack up your your screw to mess up the wood. It's not designed that way. It's designed to drive a nail. The nail is what this, this is here for, to hit that thing on the head and push it into that very wood. And a screwdriver is designed to drive the screw. This is the point. The law has a specific purpose. It has a specific reason. Now, Paul's not going to get into it in this particular book because Timothy already knows what Paul thinks. And so we got to go to a different book. We're going to shift over, if you would like, over to a book called Galatians. It's a letter written to a, a church in, a ta in an area called Galatia. And they were having a bunch of teachers coming and teaching all the Christians. They had to follow these laws and rules and be circumcised and all these kinds of things. And, and Paul gets into the detail about how the law works with us as Christians. Because he's saying, no, there's a specific purpose. And it's not for us Christians. It's not for the just. In fact, he lays out the specific purpose in this way in Galatians chapter 3. As he write, Paul writes and he says, why then the law? In other words, what's the purpose of the law? And he says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come whom the promise 
had been made. And, and here, let me clarify, he's just been arguing this whole time that Abraham had faith and he was looked at as righteous. And then along comes the law. And the law was added years after Abraham so that it would have a purpose. And he says well, that purpose was so that the transgressions, the sins would become legal, binding issues against God. God wanted to show the boundaries of morality. He wanted to reveal to us where we were going wrong. We would trust Him by faith, but He wanted us to live with Him, and He wanted to show the world that they were not. And so He laid out the law. And so the, that specific purpose was there, and then it has a secondary purpose. Then He goes on later to say, now, before faith came, before Christ's, the faith in Christ came, we were held captive under the law. And so the law was there to convict you and me. It was there to bring us to a place where we were brokenhearted over our sin. And that's a difficult thing to think about, but, and we'll get into this a little bit more later. But here's the point. The law was designed to call us to our guilt, to captive us in the, under sin, imprison us until the coming faith of Je in Jesus would be revealed. Well, so then, he says, the law was our guardian. It was like our schoolmaster in their time period they would have a particular household servant who would uh, or a slave who would lead the children to school or home and this person was de was dedicated to drive them to school to literally kind of drive them there like dong, 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 get there get there they weren't allowed to go off and mess around because they were the aristocrats 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 children right and so these guardians were there to hold them in bind them and guide them until they grew up, and Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So, let me put it this way. If you're trying to make yourself right with God by law, there's no way to do it. The law was not designed, just like the screwdriver was designed for the screw and the hammer was designed for the nail, the law was designed to protect and guard us and to drive us in a particular direction, namely to drive us to Christ. It was aimed for us there. And this sin, this being put under captive, was to make us call out, well, what's wrong? What do I do? Now, a lot, not a lot of people know, my daughter has Crohn's, and uh, I can remember when she was sitting there, and we had, she was having some major stomach issues, and there were some very bad complications that were occurring because of the Crohn's, and we didn't know what it was. At first, a few years ago in November, we were like, Wow, this, this seems weird. She lost a ton of weight. She got really pale. It, was, it just wasn't looking right. And we finally got her in. And it was like every diagnosis and every little thing led to the point where she was finally diagnosed with Crohn's. When we came to that diagnosis, the next response was not rage and anger. It was, what do we do? How do we beat this? What do we do? We've been led all the way to this point. For what? And that's when it was so frustrating when the doctors were like, well, we just don't know how to do what we're doing with it yet. And we're, just, and we're just like, oh my goodness. See, the law is designed like a doctor diagnoses our problem. When you have been diagnosed by the law with the sin of our lives, it should drive you to the question, well, then what do I do? If I can't do good and do the law to get out, what do I do? But God is much better than, um, than, than any doctor who's trying to deal with, an ex with a disease we don't understand. God has the answer, and He gave us the answer in Christ. 
And that's why it's not for us as the saints. We've come to the answer. It led us to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, he concludes, he says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We don't have to have the law guide us. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In other words, we have been brought home to Christ by faith. You see that? The law did its job. And so for us, as he says here, look down again at your, at your Bibles. It says, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, it's not laid down for the just. If you are a Christian, you are in the category of the just, as the Bible would explain it, because Jesus made you just. He made you right. And in the resurrection, we will stand before God cleansed of our sin because of what Jesus did and because the law convicted us and led us to that place. And that's the point here. Jesus is our answer to this problem. Jesus is our answer to this situation. So we don't need the law pounding us and, and driving us to Jesus. We've come there. And, and so it's distracting when we use it wrongly, when we pull the law out and start locking Christians down under the law, or we start telling you, you don't do this, you don't do this, God's not happy with you, okay, time out. That's not how the law is used. The law is still good. Remember how he puts it. He says, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The, law, the Bible is still a great thing. It's a motivation to love God. Now, not out of fear of punishment, but out of our relationship. Man, we want to love Christ. And here's the beautiful thing about the Old Testament law. It now reveals Christ to us because Jesus fulfilled the law. He said it himself. He says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill them. He fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. He fulfilled the laws, the sacrificial laws, by giving his life on the cross he fulfilled those sacrificial laws. He forgave us of our sins. He was the final offering to God. He was the one who fulfilled the food laws and the clothing laws, all these other strange laws, because we're not transformed and sanctified and made like God, uh, made like Christ in these clothing and the food that we eat so that we're different from the world. No, we're different because you have the Spirit of God in you. You have the presence of God with you. In fact, even in the presence of the Spirit of God, he fulfilled the moral law because now it comes out of us and he's cleansed our hearts like we talked about last week. You see, the beauty is the law drove us to the answers found in Jesus. So are you saying I don't need my Old Testament anymore? Nope, not saying that at all. Don't think that you don't need to go read your Old Testament. Don't think that you need to go back and see this. This was the, this, the Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus. This is the Bible of Paul. This is the Bible of, of everyone who lived in the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. They only had the Old Testament. So yeah, you can actually know theology and understand who Christ is from your Old Testament because he is in there to be discovered and known. He is there to challenge us and to shape us, to read your New Testament and not read your Old Testament, it's like trying to build a house without the foundation. You're not going to understand the reality of how the, how the house is to be built if you don't have the right footprint and foundation. The Old Testament is all of that. 
So no, don't ignore your Old Testament. Dig into it. See the richness of it. It will teach you about who God is. It will teach you about things that we shouldn't do. In fact, Paul even uses it that way. In, in another letter to the church in Corinth, he says these things. He says, now these things, speaking of all these Old Testament stories he had just referred to, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The whole Old Testament is there to show us how, how the church and how saints can, can mess up and ignore, ignore Christ and ignore His way and have wisdom. There's so much in your Old Testament. I am not telling you to ignore your Old Testament by all means. Just we learned from Jonah. We need to be in it. It transforms us. It leads us. But the law needs to be used rightly. It is good, especially when it's used as it's intended. So the law is supposed to be used primarily then for evangelism. Let me show you. As Timothy can, as uh, Paul continues on to Timothy, he says, look, understanding this, the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. And this is this whole point that he is getting into. All this text, all these things, is going to lay out what is actually, many scholars point out, like the ten, he lays out like a decalogue, a ten commandments antithesis. It's like taking the negative of the ten commandments and flipping them, and you get all this list of sin. And he says, this is what the law was used for. You see, the law is used to convict people of their need for Christ. Just like the Crohn's convicted us to the need of doing something different, the law is there to convict people to the need of Christ. It's very different than a hammer where it's like pound, pound, pound. I want to think of it more like if we're to flip and take a ball. You remember the old game croquet? They don't really sell it much anymore, I found out. But... And this was a croquet ball, and this became the mallet. The croquet mallet is supposed to hit the ball through the wickets as it leads it to the course in order to get to the post at the end to win the game. And the point is to knock it through and to score points and all that stuff, but you can't get to the post if you don't go through the wicket. You, the wicket is, if you, take you to Alice in Wonderland. This would have been a little hedgehog, and this would have been a little uh, flamingo. Blink, and it would have ran off, and then there were supposed to be these cards that were forming the little gateways. Well, that was the wicket. And here's the problem. We're the little ball, and we're going to run all over the place because we don't like conviction. We don't want to be convicted of our sin. In fact, our culture has come to the place where, we've had, where we are like every other culture. We don't want to be told we're wrong. We don't want to be told that we have a need. But the law is intended to drive us to need. Or the law is intended to drive us to see our sin. And so Paul takes great pains to lay out the kinds of things here that Timothy is like, this is what, Timothy, you need to address. They need to see the law convicts these sins and more. And he starts off with the first one. He says, look, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. This is, this is the people who stand in rebellion to God and are insubordinate. That, that's what disobedient means, insubordinate. They're literally saying, hey, I don't need you, God. I'm just going to give you the finger. I hate you. I don't care about you, or I'm, I don't really even think about God. And to be quite honest, many of us would find that this is those kind of people who are just 
completely, they don't want authority in their life. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be told what to do by government. They don't want to be told what to do by pastors. They don't want to be told what to do by their parents. They, and here's the thing, maybe that's you, maybe you're listening to this and you don't give a rip what God would say. And the, and the law would tell you you're guilty of a, of a major offense. In fact, these are groups of people that would honestly live their entire life happy if God never existed. And that is a sin in the Bible to the point in which it's saying you need to be convicted of that. Do you not see that you hate your Creator, the one who made you, that you'd be willing to buy myths of where something comes from nothing and that order comes out of disorder and just randomly, even though there's, no, there's just so much that's against those viewpoints and you're sitting there going, I don't care, Get rid I hate creators, this is dumb, magic thinking. All right. This is the core. This is the conviction. None of us like to be convicted, but the law is there to tell you that you are in condemnation. You're in danger. In fact, it goes on. He says that law is right. It's not for the just, but for the ungodly and the sinners. The ungodly, this is the kind, two kinds of people who are basically atheistic and agnostic. While the others are out and out antagonistic to God, this group of people would be more the agnostics, practically speaking. They're just ungodly. They just kind of live it out. They don't really care. They're not really thinking about it. They're not really walking around. In fact, I put it this way. These are the people who want to make their own map for life. They say, I'm going to live the way I want to live. Whether they believe in God or not, they're going to live the way they want to live, and they're not going to listen to God's map. And in fact, when they look at God's map, they're going to go like, I don't need to look at God's map. I drew my own map. It would be like telling your, your wife or your husband as you're driving, I, I don't need the map. I have my own map. I don't really know how to get there. That, that Waze device, that's just, that's just lame. I don't know what it's talking about. Well, uh, most likely you're going to get lost. And that's exactly the point. The ungodly and the sinner says, I'm going to take it my route. I'm going to go my direction. I'm going, to, I'm going to ignore God's ways and God's ideas and the Creator's ways and the Creator's ideas. I'm just going to do it my way. I don't need no Jesus to save me. I don't need none of this junk. And yet that's the conviction. If you feel that way, if you've seen that in yourself, that is what the law is telling you you're guilty of. Then now you're a rebellious, ungodly person. You're a sinner who desires to do it their own way. And you know, God can, your Creator can get lost for all you care. Oh, sure, there may be one, but hey, you've, you've excused him for being in the heavens or whatever. I get it. That, that's what happens. And then there's the idea of it's for the anti-sacred. Paul goes on and says, it's not laid down for the just, but those who, who actually, we'll back up there, who are unholy and profane. This is different from ungodly. The unholy and the profane are irreligious. In fact, what's crazy is the, the Latin translate this as the secular, as those who are secular. It is all of us who believe that we can erase the spiritual reality, the religious reality out of the world. That we're going to scrub out all of the spiritual things. Like, our, like at our school district currently, they're teaching yoga. And I think what's funny is they think somehow they can scrub out the spiritual aspects of the yoga as if it's just an exercise routine. That would be like saying, hey, come on out to snack. We're serving communion. But it's not really the body and blood of Christ. It's just a snack. 
As if you could scrub out the religious connotations of communion. You can't scrub the religious connotations out of yoga. You can't scrub the religious connotations out of meditation, transcendental meditation, even if they're beneficial. That would be like, hey, come on out. We're all going to just say words to the sky today because that's prayer, right? No. My friends, that is the secular mentality that believes it can somehow scrub out the religious. We are inherently religious beings. And if we don't believe in God, we're going to believe in something. And we see as a rising secular religion is growing where you worship the government and you worship an ideology that's come upon us. Man, this is sin. It's, it's something we need to be convicted of. The profanity and the cussing and the degrading of humanity, the use of God's name as a cuss word or a statement of just out and out blasphemy. Blasphemy, guys. This is the kind of stuff that if we're using this, we're condemned. We're far from God. We have a reckoning coming with our Creator, and the law is trying to diagnose. Guys, you have just been slammed into the wicket through that goalpost. Don't run from it. Go through it. Know that God is trying to wake you to show you the diagnosis. So you go, what are you trying to tell me? And if you've made it this far, man, if you haven't turned it off yet because you know God's convicting you, hang on. Keep going. Conviction's hard to hear. It's difficult to wrestle with, but the law is not just for this. It's for even more. So the law is laid down not, just for, not for the just, but those who strike their fathers and mothers and for murderers. And we go, oh, thank goodness I haven't murdered anybody. I'm good here. I didn't kill my parents. This is the most extreme form. This is for anybody who would tell their parents get lost. This is for people who would go into courts and literally, for, um, for whatever reason, disown their families that would, that would basically walk away for the sake of money or anything else from their parents and just like, well, this is their life. No, no, we're, we're called not to disown our parents and strike down our parents or not care for our parents. It's not for murderers. And you go, well, I haven't murdered anybody. And Jesus takes us on on that. He actually says this, you've heard that it was said, to those of old, you shall not murder. There's our word. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. And we all say amen to that. But he says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable of hellfire. And what he means there is whoever would judge someone's heart, whoever hates someone so much that you'd long for them to be in hell, you'd, you'd tell them literally, I go to hell. If that's the heartbeat, You've done as much as murder them in your heart. Jesus says that's the, the seed that begins the birth of murder. The anger and the vengeance and the wickedness that leads to bitterness and a lack of forgiveness, all of those things. And what the law is trying to do is diagnose what's going on in your soul, show you that you're far from your creator, show you that you are not a good moral person, that all of us stand condemned and we're messed up. Yes, even at this point, we're rebellious and we're unholy and we're secular and we don't care and we don't listen to our parents. And then it goes on. He says it's written for those not just laid down for the just, but for the sexually immoral. This is for anyone who would sleep with their their girlfriends or their boyfriends before they're married. That's called fornication. It's for people who want to try polyamory. It's for people who are looking at pornography. It is for people who are literally lusting their minds off at other people as they're walking around. It is for all of us who are condemned in adultery because we've, we're having sex outside of marriage. Anything that fits outside of this zone. It's why we don't live with our, um, with our uh, girlfriends or boyfriends before we get married. It's why we set that bond of marriage first. The marriage and the female to have a family and it will become one flesh and there will be that child running around if all things are working appropriately. This is all contrary to that. 
And the law is there to convict us, to show us what are we think we're doing. We're telling the Creator, you don't know what you're talking about with sexuality. It's fine that we run around and, and do our little things and clubs and all that stuff. No, my friends, if you are caught in sexual perversion, man, you've, you're, you're, you're in trouble under God. That's not what he made us for, and he doesn't want you to stay there. And so this, here comes that, that mallet hitting on that wicket, or hitting on that ball through the wicket, making us convicted again. Man, and it just hurts. And if you're still watching, well, hang on, because it doesn't help, because he goes on to say, it's not, just, it's not for the just, but for men who practice homosexuality. This is for those who are practicing homosexuals. Lesbian, homosexual, bisexual, this is not popular in our culture. This is contrary to what our culture says, which says, whatever it is, in fact, identify yourself as it. Identify yourself as an atheist. Identify yourself as secular. Identify yourself as your sexuality. Identify yourself in one of these ways. My friends, the Bible would say these are practices. These are things we do with our lives. I understand there's a deep-seated orientation that can happen in many hearts and lives, but everyone is oriented to sin in some level in some of these things. I'm oriented to secularism. I'm oriented to lying, as we'll see. I am oriented to these things. Trust me, there is an orientation here that we need to be careful of and be aware of. It doesn't mean we have to do these things. And the law is there to diagnose what's broken in our souls. And if there is a driving desire for homosexuality, it's coming out in homosexual pornography. If it's coming out in homosexual relationships, the Bible would say that is sin. And it would say, you don't have to live in that. You don't have to be bound by that. It is not your identity. It is something that can be transformed, that can be surrendered over to Jesus Christ. And this is uncomfortable for me to say in this culture, but this is what the law is, is here to do. The Bible is here to convict us of our sins so that we would know our Creator and so that we would see where we're off. And this is the case even with homosexuality. And I'm not picking on homosexuality. I mean, we're talking about all the other things as well, including lying. It goes on to another one. He'll say, now enslavers, the law is not laid down for the just, but for enslavers. And you're thinking, for enslavers? What is this? For people who kidnap, for enslavement. The Bible has used this terminology multiple ways of calling people to false religions, enslaving them into things. But look, if you think that slavery is not a problem in our world right now, you're sorely mistaken. I mean, just recently, hundreds of children were just rescued by our FBI from, because they were kidnapped by cartels and others to put them into sexual slavery. And this is what's going on. We have enslavers in our world. And if you've been involved in some level in the sex slave trade, whether it is through prostitutes or through pornography or these things, man, we've got to realize we've helped out enslavers. In fact, what, there's an estimated 58,000 slaves in the United States right now. You realize that? One of the greatest ports of entry is here in California. It is our own problem. In the world, 100 countries still have slavery. India has over 18.4 million slaves. China, 3.4 million. Pakistan, 2.1 million. Bangladesh, Uzbekistan, and North Korea all have over 1 million slaves. There are more slaves today on earth than there were back when the United States had slavery. This is still a critical issue. This isn't gone away. We don't just go like, well, that, that, that sin's dealt with. No, the human heart is wicked. We still do it. And if you're involved in that practice, be convicted. Repent. One of the greatest enslavers who ever did that, he repented and he wrote the song Amazing Grace. 
because he realized how good God was to set him free from the horrible things that he had done. It's not just that. If you feel this sense of that, of that mallet of the law bringing us across, coming upon us, moving us towards the goal through these wicked gates, then here's what you're going to find. You're going to walk into the fact that lying is one of these things. It's laid down for liars. If you're struggling because you have a constant desire to make yourself look better, to say things so that it doesn't sound so bad, or maybe you're just covering another sin, guys. Lying, deceit, all of these things are, are against God. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If we can't be a people who speak truth in our world, then you see what happens in a world of lies. You can't trust media. You can't trust science. You can't trust... We have lived in a world that has been so strong with lies that we don't even say they're lies anymore. What's the truth? If there's no truth, there's no liars. But all of us should feel the conviction of lie. All of us should see that we are condemned under the law. And it drives and it drives and it drives us towards one goal. In fact, he goes on, the law is also laid down, not for the just, but for the perjurers, those who would swear falsely to harm someone, those people who would break a promise in order to get their gain. All of these things, contract breakers, you figure out your way around it, you've got your loopholes or whatever. No, no, no. This isn't how God calls us to be. This is what he, how he wanted us to act. He wants us to be trustworthy human beings because he is trustworthy. Our creator is trustworthy. He's given us a promise and he holds to it. In fact, it just finishes off with this. He says, and the law is not laid down for the just, but for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Drug abuse is contrary to sound doctrine. Drunkenness, contrary to sound doctrine. You know, sensuality, partying, and where you're just out of control. You know, all this stuff he'll lay out in other locations, but we don't need to pull it all together. He just says, look, whatever else is there, whatever else God's convicting you of as you read this, the law and you see the law, what you're going to see is that it's a guardian and it's driving you like that croquet ball and that mallet driving, driving, driving you to one goal, and that is driving you, God willing, to grace. Because everyone, everyone stands convicted under these things. You are not alone. If you think that you alone are listening to this and you made it through that and you're, you feel the guilt, you know that you stand before the God of the universe and you'll be convicted one day of your sin and you will have to, sh you'll have to explain yourself, whether it be on racism, whether it be on any other kind of oppression, whether it's any other kind of thing. No, we all stand convicted. There are no sins that are excused and no sins that are going to be before God as more heinous or less heinous. They're, 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 they will be heinous and less heinous sins, but we all sinned and we all deal with this. We all struggle. Let me clarify again. There are sins that are more heinous and less heinous, but our culture says some sins are more heinous and the others are excused. No, all sin is sin. And what we need to see right now is that we stand convicted and guilty and we all stand that way because there, he is driving some direction of the gospel. You see, there is always hope. For, all the, for everyone convicted. Everyone, if you've been convicted, you've lasted this long in this message, you've heard that you know you're a lying, sexual, immoral, messed up, you know, rebellious, atheistic, agnostic, secularist who is just completely convicted by these things because you know you will be guilty before the day on the judgment day before God. You know this, then know that you're still you're actually in the right place. The storyline and the story arc has brought you to the winter. There's no escape. There's no way out. You don't see anything, and yet there's always hope for all of us who are convicted. It's a beautiful thing, actually, if you're convicted. 
They've come to you to end because God has something for you. There was a man who was convicted, and it was the man who wrote this book named Paul, and he begins his own testimony. He goes on to say this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. You're like, wow, that's crazy. So what? Though formerly I had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. We know that he murdered Christians and killed them in, out of the justice of the law for himself. But I received mercy because I acted in ign ignorantly and in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. What he is simply saying here is, hey guys, if he can save me, he can save you. As you come to the end of the darkest point, realize the greatest sinner that's ever lived, the, the greater than Hitler apparently, greater than any, has come to confess that he could be forgiven. You say, how is that possible? Well, when God leads you to actually write in that you are the foremost sinner, then you realize you are. This is how he says, it. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent, killing Christians, trying to destroy the church, trying to kill Jesus, was there present to, to see Stephen killed. In fact, probably was the one who brought the charges. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners whom I am the foremost. If you think you're bad, Paul's saying, no, I was the worst. And if the Spirit of God is willing, is convicting him to say that, then you need to hear he is the worst and his sin is so, was so horrendous and so bad that God told him to put it down that way. But, but, as he got to his darkest moment, when Christ appeared to him, he realized his conviction, he came to find that the law had driven him to the cross, and God gave him grace. Every single one of us who has been driven by the law were driven to this point. He says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly. Not His ignorance isn't his salvation. Just because you may have acted ignorantly, didn't know what the law, the law convicts. He says, it was in unbelief. The grace needed to be there. The mercy needed to be there. The grace overflowed for me with faith. So now suddenly he has a faith that's been given to him. God is granting you what you need. The grace is here. Receive it, and you will have this transformation of love in Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he's the foremost. Well, he finishes that off with this. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost... If he's the worst, he's saying, if I'm the foremost, if I'm number one in line, then you too can receive it. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. You may be convicted, but listen, if the foremost, the worst can be convicted and come to faith, there is opportunity for everyone. There's opportunity for you. He gives this so that you can be set free. And what happens then is you receive it and you rejoice. 
It's no wonder it ends with the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. It's a celebration and excitement. See, every story gets to winter, and maybe you're there. The condemnation is heavy. The guilt is there. You will stand before God. Come to the winter now, because what you will find is you will stare at the cross of one who died, who is perfect and never should have died, bearing your sins. Jesus takes our punishment for the law, takes our sins that we have committed, and he bears them on himself on the cross, and he acts as your go-between, your sacrifice to set you free. Receive that today and rejoice, and he will become the God you worship. And the law has done its job. It doesn't lock you down. You don't have to be perfect and good and everything's right now. No, everything comes out of an expression of love for God because he saved you, because he transformed you. And I want to give you that opportunity. We don't need to be distracted by the law, church. For all of us who are convicted, we can return again to the gospel. And if this is your first time right now, simply turn to God in heaven, your creator, and pray with me. Pray these things to receive the grace of Jesus. Say, Father in heaven, I know that I have sinned. I, there's just, I'm totally convicted. But I trust that Jesus took that conviction and that condemnation on himself. I believe and trust in you. I believe that you have set me free. Come into my life. Set me free, please. If you could set Paul free, I trust you can set me free in Jesus' name. Amen. If you did that, I want to encourage you to let us know, to get connected. In fact, to text us the word uh, begin at the number at the bottom of the screen. Let us know that you've made this decision. Don't let it go by because this is the beginning point of a journey of knowing God learning to love him and loving and living with him and sharing him to others. And if the law has convicted you today, don't resist. And you didn't make that move, make it now. It's an opportunity. Just simply let us help you as you begin this journey of freedom from your sin, freedom from guilt and condemnation, freedom from having to prove you're good because God makes you good. He makes it that way. And he considers it that way. And it'll transform your soul. You know, as we go from here, I pray that we all as a congregation would be focused on this beautiful gospel. We'd be focused on loving Christ and living for him and sharing him. That he would be known wherever we go because that is our aim. We don't need to be distracted. God bless you guys as we keep focused. <laughs>